So I'm really sorry not to be with you today in person. Um, but having had COVID all week, I didn't want to risk still being infectious and passing it on. It's good to be speaking to you, if not alas, uh, with you. Anyway, two stories to begin. Uh, one fictional and silly, uh, one real and deadly serious. The fictional one first. In the Dog and Duck pub in the village of Lower Carping, four men and two women sit round a table. The tone of the conversation is conspiratorial and voices are kept low for these six people organise the village's campaign against HS2. For three years, they've written letters and and lobbied councillors and left messages with their MP, maintained a, a huge banner on the entrance to the village that says, keep carping on, no HS2 in our backyard. But at the present meeting, the mood is grim. Despite every protestation, Fences have been erected and earth-moving equipment is creating a 50-metre-wide soil scar just a quarter of a mile from the nearest village house. So their talk begins to move away from planning outrage letters and posters on every lamppost and towards uh, more sinister actions. Sabotage has been mentioned on more than one occasion. And now they've just discovered that a senior HS2 project manager is staying in the village. In fact, he's he's in the pub's guest room, just, just up the back stairs from the very bar in which they sit. That's his, that's his Land Rover Discovery in the car park outside. One of the group lightheartedly suggests letting the tyres down. But soon there's talk of denting panels and smashing windscreens, even of torching the whole vehicle. And eventually one of them leans in and says, never mind the vehicle, what about kidnapping the project manager? There's a pause as the group ponder this idea. A further round of beer is ordered and then another, and the proposals become more and more fantastical. And eventually at 11.15pm, they each leave, excited by the prospect of the minor league terrorism they have hatched, and safe in the knowledge that absolutely nothing will come of any of it. And a true story albeit with some details changed. A factory worker who lives in a strict Muslim country does not like what he sees of religion. When sitting in a car one day with a friend from work, his friend tells him about Jesus. His friend gives him a Bible, which he reads secretly the whole thing in a month. And he makes a decision to become a Jesus follower. His friend cautiously introduces him to a secret fellowship that meets in somebody's house. And without telling anyone, even his wife, he starts to attend. But one day, as he approaches the house for their regular Bible study and prayer, he sees police entering the building. Terrified, he flees, literally, leaving job, home, family and even country. And after many months, he arrives here in Britain. His wife has no idea where he is and no insight about why he has gone. The police search her house, that the neighbours turn against her, but she doesn't know where he is. After a whole year has gone by, she simply gets one three-word phone call from him. I am safe. Slowly, she feels safe to talk uh, more. Sorry, slowly, he feels safe to talk more, and his his wife arranges even to make a visit to the UK. She too becomes a Christian, and it is her turn to leave wider family 
and bring her son to live with her husband in England. Well, these stories. Our passage today, <laughs> 1 Peter 3, verse 1 to 7. Goodness me. Well, wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands. It's an interesting start, isn't it? We immediately should ask when we read words like that, well, in the same way as what? And those of you who have been here for the last two weeks will know the answer. It's in the same way as the two earlier instructions in the previous chapter. Uh, in verse 13 of chapter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among people, whether to the emperor or to governors. And verse 18 of the same chapter, slaves submit to your uh, to your masters. And so chapter 3, verse 1, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Well, I wonder what your gut reaction is on... <laughs> on reading those words. I was going to ask you to chat about it and give me some feedback. That's um, obviously a bit difficult. This is one of those passages in the Bible that is hard to warm to because so many of us are offended by the concepts within it. Why, we ask, should wives be submissive to their husbands? Why must they dress plainly and look dull? Why must they be quiet and demure and never assertive? Why are they never to be able to exercise equal influence over the affairs of the family and household? And who says they are the weaker partner? This whole section appears to belong to another age. An age in which a man, Peter, feels at liberty to tell women the ways in which they are to relinquish self-determination and autonomy. So, Alton Baptist Church... Thanks for giving me this passage. Did you think let's get Tim to do the difficult bit? Well, I want to be very British today and give you a three point sermon. I want to draw out three suggestions for us from this passage. Uh, but for that, I need my my graphics package. Um, here we go. Um, so uh, three, uh, three points to make, three encouragements to be, uh, first of all, quietly brave uh, and then to be uh, quietly godly and lastly to be quietly confident uh, never let it be said that i don't make an effort with my visual aids well first of all uh, to be quietly brave the encouragement to be quietly brave let's start by dealing with this apparent gaping disconnect between the worldview of peter and ours of course we believe our world to be enlightened and fundamentally more fair with regard to gender roles. And that's no doubt true. But before being too hard on Peter, we should take a bit of a reality check. Remember just how tiny the Christian community was in each city where it met back in the days when Peter was sending his letter to them. Remember that they had no, no privileges, no power, no influence. And the passage suggests that the bulk of the new Christians were slaves, or at least those from relatively impoverished backgrounds, and women. Uh, we may be disappointed then that these chapters um, you know, don't call for people to rise up and throw off the shackles of slavery. We might be disappointed that there's no call to overturn the restrictions of patriarchy uh, and that there's no encouragement to you know, stick it to the man and take a woman's rightful place as an equal partner in marriage. But look, get real. There was no more chance of that happening 
than there is of six people in lower carping ever overturning a decision of government and big business to drive a new high-speed railway line through their countryside. I mean, you can plot and fantasise all you want about the revolt and rebellion that you think the Bible writers should have called for, but really, how would it have ended? Peter's not trying to reinvent society. He's trying to create a community. He's trying to encourage a small group of persecuted believers to live as sensible witnesses within their culture. And this is why Peter calls for the whole church to submit to their authorities and for slaves to submit to masters and for wives to submit to husbands. Realistically, what else would you propose? Could slaves could slaves leave their masters and go and get another job? No. Would women who demanded equality with their husbands be guaranteed safety and protection? Probably not. Christianity may be a revolution, but at this stage, it's a quiet one. So if Peter in this passage is being a bit conservative in the face of powerful social expectations, we might want to cut him a little bit of slack. After all, it took a further 1800 years for the power dynamic to change such that slavery was abolished in this country. Uh, And that was not least, I know, because of the campaign of Christians, but note that they were powerful Christians, not marginalised Christians. And it took a further century or more for the Sex Discrimination Act to become law. I think it would be correct in saying that Christians were sadly unconvinced about it even then. So Peter is not bottling it. He's just seeking to give realistic advice. And in fact, as Evan Winter noticed last week, his advice that seems conservative to our thinking contains a kernel that is radical. And the key to understanding this is in verse one. Wives must submit to their husbands so that husbands that do not believe the word may be won over by the behaviour of their wives. In ancient times, you see, the man determined the religion of the household. The man chose the gods that were to be worshipped. So a truly conservative position would have been for Peter to tell the wives, don't be so presumptuous to think that you can determine your own religion. If your husband does not believe, then you have to follow your husband and abandon your faith and just pray that God maybe will convert him in the end. That's what wider society would have said. But no, Peter is concerned that the wives cling to their faith and become fruitful witnesses, exercising sufficient influence to bring their husbands to faith, albeit in in ways that are quiet and gentle rather than argumentative and confrontational. So it seems to me that Peter, far from asking the women to be bland and pathetic, is actually asking them to be uh, quietly brave. And this is why I think verse six asks the wives not to give way to fear. Peter says, in effect, stick with your husbands, stick with your faith, be submissive, wait and pray. Peter is encouraging a quiet subversion that has a realistic chance of producing change rather than a fantasy rebellion that was deemed to serve neither the women nor the gospel. Because, friends, we we forget how dangerous being a Christian can be. Take my story of the man who escaped his home country, having come to faith. Okay, in that case, it was the man, not the woman who came to faith first, but he didn't dare tell even his wife about his faith. He didn't dare to be seen or even own, uh, sorry, he didn't dare to be seen reading or even owning a Bible. And when he fled, he told no one that he'd gone or why he was going. So 
self-determination in matters of faith in many, many places around the world is just not safe. And what that man did, wholly without the knowledge of his wife, was the only way he knew how to protect her. His ignorance, or so her ignorance of his faith, was key to her survival. And his slowly, slowly approach eventually resulted in her discovery of faith. It's a fascinating story of quiet bravery, in which a quiet and gentle spirit converts an unbelieving spouse. So look, we just have to accept that these words in 1 Peter chapter 3, they sound old fashioned to us. OK, there it is. But we have to see that Peter is is not trying to give a theological justification for equality. He's trying to give advice that permits persecuted and suffering church members to be wise witnesses rather than foolish upstarts. And those of us like you and me, who are fortunate enough not to live under brutal dictatorship, and not to live in a society powered by a slave workforce, and not to live with a presumption that the man rules all, well, we should find compassion for those who did. Yet he was still working out what their faith meant, nevertheless. And, of course, we ask ourselves the question, in what way am I called to be quietly brave? Where does the defence of justice demand that I show courage? When does the cause of the gospel require me to stand firm? Is it in my home with unbelieving family members? Is it in my workplace with those who hold a very different moral code? Is it in my conversations with those who marginalise others or ridicule Jesus? I'll leave that thought with you. Where is God calling you to be quietly brave? And just a quick aside before you move on, it's always worth saying when we talk about submitting to husbands and this type of these gender roles, it's always worth saying that um, faith um, in marriage uh, does not mean that women should put up with any sort of domestic abuse. If If you're in a relationship which is physically or emotionally abusive, then please seek the help of one of the pastoral team in the church. Secondly, big graphic package moment, be quietly godly. Be quietly godly. Wives, says Peter, your beauty should not come from outwards uh, adornment. Now, I'm not actually sure that Peter here is condemning all jewellery or disparaging a blow-dry at the hairdressers. After all, I expect that submission to husbands involve women paying some attention to those things. I just think he's saying that hair and jewels and clothes, they don't define true beauty. Uh, they may scintillate and beguile, but, but true beauty, unfading beauty, is is inner. It's to do with, um, well, according to Peter, purity and reverence for God, that's verse two. And it's to do with gentleness and quietness of spirit, he says in verse four. Quietness of spirit is perhaps peacefulness. So purity, reverence, gentleness, peacefulness. These are deeply rooted matters of character rather than superficial means of adornment. And once again, I think our culture clashes here with Peter's culture, but this time 
perhaps it is we who have much to learn. We might see Peter's portrayal of a godly woman as rather quaint and a bit diminishing. You know, women, you just need to be pure and gentle. But before we dismiss his recommendation as one belonging to an earlier age, we should just pause and say, well, hang on. We're not seriously suggesting, are we, that there's something wrong with purity or with reverence or with gentleness or with peacefulness. In our frantic and busy and often compromised world, purity, reverence, gentleness and peacefulness are in short supply. They are hugely undervalued. And don't these qualities in a person still have the power to witness to Jesus? See, I read this passage and I just think, well, forget the gender distinctions being made by Peter. I want to be pure and reverent and gentle and peaceable. I'd be nice if my wife was as well, but I, I want that. I think those are things, those are values I want to hold to. Some of the Christians I most admire, men or women, demonstrate these features because this is about quietly godly character. So although Peter assigns this particular instruction to wives, surely the appeal for godly character is universal. I don't know how many of you have ever come across uh, Jeff Colmer. I know some of you have. Jeff was Baptist Union president in 2021 to 22. Uh, For those unaware, the presidency of the Baptist Union is a kind of rotating, honorary, um, sort of prophetic, encouraging sort of role. Well, Jeff had it for a year. And in Jeff's presidential year, well, it coincided with ongoing COVID restrictions and with his own personal battle with cancer. But if you've met Jeff, especially perhaps in that demanding time when both we and he were so restricted, then you would know what I mean about a person who exudes purity and reverence and gentleness and peacefulness. I'm not saying that Jeff or anyone else is perfect, but I'm just saying that he was a person who came to my mind when I read this passage, because I find quiet godliness deeply appealing. And when you find a person who has this godly character, there's a safety in being in their presence, even if they also challenge you. And let me say that in my role now, as I unfortunately have sometimes to examine the conduct of ministers, I want to say that however impressive a minister may be as a preacher, evangelist, pioneer or visionary, give me good character above any of those any day. So being quietly godly That's for all of us to pursue. In verse seven, Peter later tells husbands to turn in turn to be considerate to their wives, treating them with respect. But, you know, well, what does being considerate look like? Doesn't it imply, I don't know, maybe purity and gentleness and reverence and peacefulness? Isn't being considerate an aspect of quiet godliness? So character is all. Wives pursue quiet godliness. But husbands, single people, in fact, everyone else in the room, do the same. (laughs) How godly are you? How pure in what you say, do, read and watch? How reverent in how you hold each day before God? How gentle when the supermarket queue is long? when you're tired and your defences are down? And how peaceable are you? 
on social media, for example. More questions to leave you with, I think. When is God calling you to be quietly brave? And how can you be quietly godly? By the way, quick aside, it's odd um, that in the passage, Sarah, that's Abraham's wife, Sarah, is um, given as an Old Testament example. This is in verse six. In the story of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12 to 23, you'll actually find Sarah really isn't covered in glory. Uh, We see her submission to Abraham landing them in very hot water indeed, as she goes along with his dishonest instruction to act as if she is his sister and not his wife. We see her being mean and spiteful to her slave girl. We see her laughing at God and then lying to God after he promises her a son. And we see her in meek and submissive ignorance of a husband as he sets out to kill the only child that they had together. Is this kind of a model of what a good and submissive marriage looks like? Hmm. Well, presumably, by the time of the New Testament, Sarah had been awarded an exalted status as a sort of archetypal godly woman. And that is because the entire Israelite story hinged on her submission to both her husband and God in, in one critical matter. The arrival of Isaac from whom the Israelites descend and from whom it's, you know, the the story of God or through whom the story of God continues, his arrival is predicated on Sarah's submission as an aging woman uh, to the sex and the pregnancy and the childbirth necessary to bring it about. I wonder how old Abraham was. That's quite bravery for you, perhaps. And I guess Sarah stands as a reminder that the Bible contains no perfect people. Well, well, it contains one, but it's not Sarah, and it wouldn't be you or me. And and that's okay. All we can do, flawed as we are, is ask for the Spirit's strength as we seek to be quietly brave. And for the Spirit's grace as we seek to be quietly godly. Let's not beat ourselves up. Let's simply aspire to do better, looking to God. So another drink of water and uh, another turn of the uh, turn of the graphics. So thirdly and lastly, uh, be quietly confident. Peter says in in verse seven that that wives are the weaker partner in a marriage. Hmm. This does, I admit, sound pretty patronising. Husbands, treat your wives with respect as the weaker partner. Now, some people say that he's only stating the obvious that women on average have less physical strength than men. Actually, as an aside, and being a bit of a cycling bore, I've been reading a book recently about Beryl Burton, famous, well, well, not that famous, that's the point, female British cyclist in the 1960s who dominated the women's scene for over a decade and consistently rode times that would have seen her in the top 10 and even on the podium had she been in the men's competition. So that's one in the eye for male physical superiority. But anyway, I digress. Is Peter really simply saying that women are physically weaker? doesn't quite wash with me that he's saying just that. I might not like it, but I actually think he's probably reflecting the cultural assumption of the day that women are somehow less than men. Physically, of course, in terms of strength and size, but probably also intellectually. Uh, And who's to know if they didn't have the same educational opportunity 
And maybe even morally, you know, didn't Eve tempt Adam after all? (laughs) But here's the thing. If Peter, a man of his time, thought women were in some manner less than men, he immediately, in the very same sentence, undermines his own assumption. And he does so because he's also a man of the gospel. Husbands, treat your wives with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Whatever then the differences are between men and women due to physiology, social conditioning, educational opportunity, gender role assumptions or anything else, these weaker partners share with the stronger partners one thing. Both are equally heirs of the gracious gift of life. The gift of salvation, the offer of reconciliation with God, the adoption into God's family, the bounty of an eternal inheritance, which, as chapter one says, can never perish, spoil or fade. All of these are equally given to husbands and to wives. And for that matter, if we travel back to chapter two, to masters and to slaves or to emperors and to their subjects, to anyone who, in the words of chapter one, has found new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it is as if Peter accidentally reveals how the gospel overturns his cultural assumption. And so for us, the message is this. Whatever your station in life, however high or low you feel yourself to be in the hierarchies we create, and whether other people tend to adore and exhort you or ignore and diminish you, you can be quietly confident in this, that you have a full and equal share in the gracious gift of life. There is a reason for you to hold your head high. You also are a loved child of God. And that is why, of course, these small gatherings of Christians in the the ancient world in which Peter was living, that's why so many of them had slaves. That's why so many of them had women in their congregations, because they flocked, presumably, to those new communities, because in this emerging group of people, everyone might feel pride. Everyone might be quietly confident of their status as children and subjects of the living God, the God who is, by the way, the one who will eventually hold all emperors, masters and husbands to account. So as I wrap up, then look, sorry if in approaching this passage, you were expecting a sermon on gender roles or a bit of advice about how husbands and wives should relate. I'm sorry to have disappointed you, but I think there are broader points to make that apply to every culture, every generation, both genders, to the married and the unmarried and everyone. For us in the 21st century, the issues may be different. We we live in an age that is by and large godless, often very aggressive, often, I think, dehumanising. And what we find here is an exhortation to be quietly brave in our witness to a godless society an instruction to be quietly godly pure gentle and peaceable in an aggressive society and an encouragement to be quietly confident 
that our inheritance in Jesus can never perish, spoil or fade. And that acts for us as a refuge in a dehumanising society. So I trust you've been encouraged by God's word today. Let me pray for you briefly. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that in a changing culture where assumptions about how we live and what is right and wrong seem so often to change, I thank you that some truths are eternal, most especially that we can all be made your children and can share in that gracious gift of life. Help us to receive it and feel confidence within that. And with that knowledge of our security in you. Inspire us, Lord, to be godly, to have the character that shines for you, that others find deeply appealing. And when we are called to it, Lord, give us bravery, give us courage to stand up for you, for others, for our faith. Holy Spirit, fill us that we may be quietly brave, quietly godly, and quietly confident. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. See you soon.